Hey there, everybody. This is Josh Rayner, Editor-in-Chief of DC Comics News. Are you planning on heading to Wizard World Comic Con sometime this year? Well, we have a great deal for you. If you are planning to do so, you can get 10% off your ticket purchase by using the code DCNEWS at checkout. That's DC. N-E-W-S at checkout to save 10% off your tickets for Wizard World. And that's for any city that, uh, that they will be doing. So make sure you head over to www.wizardworld.com tickets and use the code DCNEWS for 10% off. Hi everyone, I'm here to tell you about the DC Comics News Podcast. Here every week to talk everything DC. Movies, TV, comics and everything in between. But don't just take my word for it. Here are a couple of our sponsors. Listen to the DC Comics News Podcast. It's audio justice. <laughs> no, no, no. It's audio chaos. These wackos are crazier than I am. Well, maybe you're both right. Regardless, you can catch us on every kind of podcast platform. Apple Podcasts. Google Play. Spotify. Stitcher. And everywhere you find great podcasts. So, um, can I go now? Let him go. He did everything you asked. (laughs) (laughs) No. This is The Spinner Rack, episode number 16, right here on the DC Comics News Podcast Network. I'm your host, Seth Singleton, and it's time to pick the top five books from DC Comics, just like I do each and every week. Now, I like to think of you as being along with me on this journey, so every once in a while, you might hear me slip into the Wii. I hope you don't mind. Thanks for the fun ride if you've already been joining me for each and every episode. And let's get started with our first selection. I'm starting things off with Lois Lane number one. In fact, speaking honestly, right now, there are three books making their debut this week. And I felt that what they were offering and also the interesting perspective of looking at three different number one books made for perfect selections for the spinner rack. The other two, well, you'll just have to stick around to hear what they are. Starting things off with our first book, we have Lois Lane number one, Enemy of the People. So, most of what's going on is in relation to the developing storyline that's the summer event known as Leviathan. For more information about a lot of the details that might seem a bit confusing, I would recommend picking up any of the content related, maybe start with the Leviathan number one, You'll also maybe want to consider some of the other titles that might have the larger developing plot lines. I'm not going to tell you which ones to get in order to fill in your story, but I do know that for some elements of this book, the tie-ins to Leviathan may create a disconnect if you haven't been reading any of the Superman stories or some of the larger DC Universe arc stories, which might be helpful. But for this issue, I feel that it still does many things that I really enjoyed and that made it a great pick. There's a lot of conflict in the world, 
And the Leviathan arc right now is attempting to show how people with the means and motivation and planning can take advantage of that time and add to the chaos while also putting into play their desires for changing the world or the underworld or outside world that we don't perceive but we know works in and around us. The Leviathan event and the present day news are part of so much of what is going on in the story of Lois Lane number one. And I like that there's so much going on and that Lois is playing an active role, at least one of my favorite story parts, the present day conflicts. In this issue, you have a lot of information being provided not only through the direct story of Lois Lane, but the fact that she's a reporter with the TV always on to a news channel. You can hear the updates about detained migrants, also about the idea of different civil rights issues, moves by the administration that are being challenged and questioned and then moved past. Each one of these issues feels like it's a very difficult, challenging idea, and yet hearing its small segments of details reminds me about how much these are prevalent issues in our current environment and how this issue does a great job of addressing that and including it. Later, we have another example when Lois Lane challenges the White House Administration Press Secretary about numbers that she has that demonstrate that donations made by companies like LexCorp and other nefarious groups were made directly to members of the administration in order to gain an advantage for their for-profit prisons. Again, something that has been in the news, something that feels very relevant to our current times, and also something that shows that this is Lois Lane, a reporter who likes to get into trouble. In fact, as she jokes with Superman at one point in one of their stories, the idea that, you know, she's known for falling off buildings or getting into all sorts of other trouble. She's not afraid to. It doesn't slow her down. And she's not going to let this slower down. So when she's given the opportunity to challenge a voice of authority, she speaks truth to power, and it's a really great moment. But there's more going on as well that feels familiar. Lois knows of the death of a reporter who was working in Russia, who was famous for criticizing the Russian government, and now appears to have died as an accident or natural causes, but she believes is retaliation for the reporter's work. In order to find out what's really going on, Lois sends the question, one of my favorite characters on a mission, to find out more information and what information this reporter might still have that could be valuable in addressing the crimes or misdeeds of the Russian government. Another interesting part of the story that I really enjoy is a plot line that occurred outside of this issue but is heavily impacted by it is an event in which Lois and Superman are seen kissing. And everyone believes that Lois is with Clark, or has been, and that this moment is something that casts her in a negative light. Later, when Lois and Clark are walking on the street together, a stranger passes by and, in a low voice, calls her a slut. And Clark points out that while people have no problem saying that, to Lois or about her, no one said anything about him, a capital H, him, referencing Superman. 
To which Lois responds that that's because he's a he. Again, reminding me of some of the things that I have heard in the conversation at large in our public discourse about how men and women are treated in situations that are perceived unseemly. The last point that I really love about the story is how the identity of Lois is firmly established through the previous examples I gave, but also this one where Lois lets Clark know after they've had a talk about the kiss and the he and about what that means for what they have to deal with. Clark says that Lois is keeping something from him. And this is a really powerful moment because when she says, yes, there is, it's not an admission with guilt. It's an admission that's a statement. She tells him that she needs to keep certain things from him. For example, what happened with Jorel and John in space, and that when she's ready, she'll tell him. But she says that they both need to be able to keep secrets over each other, because if they can keep secrets from each other, then they can trust each other completely, and that he should know that if she's keeping something, she's probably got a good reason. I really thought that was a powerful moment. It really spoke to me, I think because it's something in a relationship that at some point has to be defined, even if it's not always said. But here we get to see the power of Lois telling a figure as impressive as Superman, even if it's his alter ego, that she's going to keep secrets. And when she does that, it's not about trust or mistrust, or even about lying or anything along those lines. It's about the fact that they both need to be able to keep secrets from each other because it's healthy. It's something that maintains that degree of trust. And that's a really challenging idea, I think, for anyone to present to a partner. But I love the confidence and the strength that Lois displays when she does this. I think it makes for a great issue. I love the art all the way through. There's this sort of shadowy tone, a shading, a... uh, Well, I guess shadow maybe is the best word. There's this dark layering that seems to tint everything. Maybe tint's the best word. And through it, you get the sense that this isn't a bright, cheery, sunny world, even though parts of it take place maybe in Metropolis and the scenes that we see mostly that appear to be occurring in Chicago. Um, There isn't a brightness to it. And a lot of times, I think, with Superman characters, that perception of brightness just sort of comes through, you know, shining, perfect. And that's not what's happening in this world. This is an example of Lois Lane in the real world, the nitty gritty of reporting. I think it's a masterful job. I really enjoyed this story. That's why I was happy to make it my first pick for this episode of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. On my score of one out of five, I am more than happy to give this book a solid five. I couldn't find anything wrong with it. And if you can, and you gave a lower score, well, please stick around to the very end. That's when I love to go ahead and let you know all the ways you can reach out to us and share your scores, thoughts, views, comments, and more with the team here at the DC Comics News Podcast. Let's go ahead and move on to book number two, which is also our second book in the slot of number ones. This time around, I've got Superman up in the sky. This was a really interesting story. I feel like every take on Superman is going to be an interesting story because it's always imbued with the hopes, fears, dreams of the writer and artist who are telling it. And in this story, we open with this really interesting idea. Clark, I need you. 
Just a statement, but one said by Batman, who really in my mind is someone who doesn't ask for help a lot. And when he does, it's because he knows he's either outmatched or outskilled or simply recognizes that there's a smarter way of going about it by relying on someone who's got the natural aptitude, talent, or powers to do something he can't. The story here is about a home invasion, the death of two people. I believe it stated that they're elderly, but I'm not going to go into dwelling too much about that. There's a murder, and then multiple murders. And in all of the mess, one girl somehow survives and is taken to a hospital, and one girl is kidnapped. She's actually kidnapped using a counterfeit Zeta beam. And I think this brings up an interesting idea, because in order to do anything about it, Superman has to leave the planet. And what's one girl versus a planet? So many things can go wrong. And through a series of great visuals, these one-page splashes that present a larger image and then below and around them presents these other images that are supporting but clearly either of less importance or not the main idea on each splash page. And with each of those pages, as Clark discusses and Superman discusses this with Batman and with Pa Kent and mulls it over in his mind, he's torn about whether or not he has a right to leave a planet defenseless for what seems to be potentially weeks, months, who knows, in order to find this missing girl. And in the process, do so tracking a counterfeit Zeta beam not something that's easily done. I like the idea that by seeking out this help, he does a really good job of, I mean, not only the writer, but Superman, about understanding what's going on, but also reinforcing what he already knows to be true. When Clark speaks to Pa, Pa mentions that, sure, Superman can stay here, and, you know, the girl will just, well, she'll die. And until she dies, he mentions that she'll be scared and alone and thinking, someone will save me. And without Superman to go to do that, without saying anything more, Pa lets both Clark and us know that in that moment, she'll die scared and alone, hoping someone will save her, even though no one will. But also, later when Superman's talking with Batman, there's a moment where Batman praises him in a way that feels very heartfelt and authentic, and I really enjoyed that this moment was given. Batman says, you do what I do on the ground, but you do it up there. I'm staying. But there's a difference between you and me. Actually, there's between you and everyone, there's a difference. We're who we are, and you're Superman. And I thought that was a really beautiful moment that maybe feels uh, hokey, corny, cheesy in a world that's often so gritty. But the idea of looking to someone because of all of the best values that they embody is something that I think is really heartening. It's something that really stuck with me. This issue kind of sunk in with me a bit, and especially after Lois Lane number one. uh, Talking about it feels like something that I need to do with a degree of thought and consideration, and I think I'm struggling with my words a bit, but I appreciate you sticking around with me while I do. A few other things that I love, in order to figure out where the girl is, Superman has to interact with a Zeta Beam, This is something that should kill him, and it, well, of course it's Superman, probably not going to happen, but how he gets past it, 
And the process includes this really wonderful series of memories or flashbacks or dreams that at one point even leave you wondering, did the whole story start with Superman sitting down in the chair to challenge this counterfeit Zeta beam that's supposed to drive him crazy? I think the art that matches this story is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it's so well drawn. The comparison of Gotham and Metropolis, the way we get a chance to see the sort of animated actions of uh, Perry White when he unloads on Clark about the idea of writing a story about a girl who was murdered in Gotham instead of a story about anything else that might be going on in Metropolis. I love the, the scenes in space, the way Superman is so often shown straining and also, in the process, the emotion around his eyes feels really passionate. And it's really a, a joy to take in beautiful images like this with such a great story. I thought this was a really masterful job. And I'm more than happy to go ahead and give this book a solid 5 out of 5. That's 2 out of our number 1s. Let's see if the third can hold up to the test. Now, my third choice around for the DC Comics News Spinner Rack is the third first issue coming out this week. It's from DC's Young Animal, and it's a new take on the Doom Patrol, titled Weight of the Worlds. I was really intrigued by this book. I always thought of the Grant Morrison run back in the 90s as something that I really wasn't either smart or cool enough to really get, but that I hoped that I would one day be smart enough or cool enough to get. And as I got more into Grant Morrison's work through the 90s, Doom Patrol was always something that I could come back to to sort of understand similar to Animal Man, how this was one of his earliest four ways into some of the more interesting storytelling that we've come to expect from Grant Morrison. When it comes to this version, I loved so many of the elements that I've come to associate with Doom Patrol, whether through the comic books or the television show. Shocking, somewhat stark imagery, um, a sort of 3D and graphic styling or graphic design approach to text, lettering, and description, and the idea of text being written in more than the two-dimensional sort of paper space, but trying to show three or more dimensions. I also like the way that so many of the characters are introduced with these really great little asterisks that sort of point out who they are. Uh, Danny is an ambulance. Uh, Casey is fictional. Flex Mentalo is fictional. Many of these characters are characters that, if you're familiar with the Doom Patrol, you'll be familiar with this iteration. And yet, this is probably where I actually have my biggest struggle with the book, is that in many instances, information is provided, but it's also referenced from other books and storylines. For example, uh, a story about Cliff trying to understand where he came from, um, that he might be some, you know, fan fiction cooked up in his mom's house, but he came from somewhere. And then a tag saying this came from Doom Patrol number 11. Well, if you hadn't been reading Doom Patrol recently and you tried to go back to the earlier 90s issues, just my mistake, you might find yourself really confused. And I really enjoyed this issue for the fact that despite so many moments where I felt that, okay, in order to understand this plot line, you're going to need this previous book, there's also a forward momentum that seems to say, okay, well, this is some information that if you didn't know, you know now. And now that you know it, we're just charging ahead with this great story. There's a certain 
confidence when doing that. And I'm not sure if it's just on the part of the writer or if it's a byproduct of working on a story like Doom Patrol where in so many ways, as long as you can keep the reader with you, you're guaranteed to get to that place where you can show them why it is you couldn't tell them everything right when they wanted, right when they thought they needed, or maybe when it would have seemed the most useful or valuable. Among my other favorite story parts about this book are some of the character developments, some of the introductions that we get to see where whatever place these characters were in before we started this issue, the place they're in now, it feels like it's one about restoration and preparation. And I think one of the best examples here is with uh, Negative Man, when we get to see him enter an animal shelter and find a companion animal, this really cute, floppy-eared, sad-eyed little dog, and how from that moment, we're also brought to these other great sort of touching descriptions and visuals where each character is struggling, whether it's Jane, whether it's Rita. And again, in some situations, there are suggestions that if you haven't been keeping up, this might not be something that you're going to fully understand. Like the idea of Rita being, you know, a space Christ and her experience in various realities. That might require a little bit of background to understand, yet at the same time, if you're willing to take it at face value and say, well, this is what the character appears to have gone through before, and now this is what they're dealing with as I go forward with them, I really think it still allows you to engage with the story. However, for a better understanding of everything going on, there might be a point where it's helpful to find those previous titles and to get a sense of just what sort of depth and degree uh, these things that are being referenced might be actually uh, impacting the characters. I love the great moment when Flex tries to do the most weight he can ever do, or essentially lift the most weight he has ever tried to lift before. And this leads to his discovery of Destiny Beach. And from there on out, it's just a wild, mystical ride that feels like a lot of fun. We get to a planet where people are being challenged to change their shape because they want to satisfy the needs of Gerb the Messiah, and they have to get on the eternal treadmill, which sounds like a nightmare or a really interesting comparison to the rat race so many of us live in the 9 to 5, if that's what we're required to do. I didn't really struggle with anything in this story. I mean... Just to come back to the art, it was gorgeous, it was brilliant, it captured each one of the scenes and uh, scenarios, and I thought it did it with uh, a really great degree of consideration and awareness, and whether it's the bright and shiny new planet that Doom Patrol is saving, or the stark gray shadowed loneliness of the house where Cliff goes to confront his mom and dad and also deal with their rejection and disappointment. In a story like Doom Patrol, I feel like it's really hard to find negatives in the art or story because so much of what's going on is designed to introduce an idea of different perception or different interpretation. And because of that, what's being done is so often beyond the idea of is it good, is it bad, do I like it, don't I. Final note, great little cliffhanger at the end. 
And I do mean <clears throat> cliff hanger. Go ahead and read into that however you will. I can't wait to hear what your thoughts were after you read this, because even though I had some of these concerns with the book, and even though I felt that there were uh, just a few issues about the challenge when it comes to understanding what's currently going on, it wasn't enough to knock this book down from anything less than a 4 out of 5 on my score. And I'm curious to hear what your score is. Again, listen all the way to the end for all the ways that we let you know how to contact us here at DC Comics News Podcast Spinner Rack. My fourth choice for this week is Female Furies. This is issue number six, and it moves us away from our three number one issues coming out this week, and it also brings to a close this six-issue miniseries that has introduced the Female Furies and what it's like for women on the planet of Apocalypse. What's been going on so far? Well, essentially we've been witnessing the challenges faced by the Female Furies, by Big Barda, and how those challenges are mirrored against the idealism of Scott Free and the sense of, essentially, he really presents this idea of freedom, which seems so contradictory to everything that is preached and beaten into everyone who lives on Apocalypse. Which is why when we move into one of my favorite moments in the story, it's really impressive to see Barda and the Furies going to the lowly sector, a birthing center, and challenging the women to stand with them, rise up against the men. And how that's met with some rotten fruit to the face and a bit of scorn, essentially saying, who do you think you are coming down here with all your fancy ways and telling us to give up more? The Furies are known for their violence, and it's a struggle for them not to attack these women in order to beat them into submission, but Barda knows that they can't be changed with brute force, and this is something that the Furies struggle with as much as they struggle seeing their leader, Barda, willing to do this. The challenges for women on Apocalypse have been mighty and demonstrated masterfully throughout this miniseries. Right in this series, we get the chance to see not only that challenge presented to the female Furies when they ask for the help of the lowly sector women, but also the challenges facing Barda and her boss, Granny. See, it's Granny who has been, well, working to achieve a higher status among the sort of hierarchy of dark sides, environment and controlling ruling party uh, on Apocalypse. And she thinks that she secured herself the perfect spot until she's met by Godfrey, whose nephew needs a job. <laughs> and now Granny will be taking orders from him. And it's another example of how no matter what these women accomplish, they are always seen as less than or lowly by comparison to the men. Finally tired of letting men have this way, the Furies first seek out help from their former compatriot Dreamer, who says that actually she can't help them. This is something they'll have to do on their own. And that's when the Furies set into play this really great plan, which is to use a disaster scenario to cause Apocalypse to break apart, well aware of the fact that Lashina, who has always kind of vied for leadership and sort of challenged Barda is praised by Barda for her brilliance because Lashina comes up with a way for everyone to think that the planet is going to disintegrate 
but her backup plan is actually a process that will save the planet. And while the men escape, believing they're evacuating, the women are actually able to stay on Apocalypse and assert their own independence, their own sense of self, and do so without the influence of the men who've always treated them as lesser and weaker. The art through this entire series has been gorgeous. This book does a great job of maintaining that consistency. The lines are crisp and clear. The expressions, the anger, the sort of nastiness that comes from Apocalypse is so evident in almost every expression that it makes the sort of really brilliant, bright uh, optimism that comes from first Barda and later from the Furies a contradiction and one that shines like a light in the darkness. It's a really great story. I really enjoyed everything that is done in this issue. And I struggled to find weak moments either in the story or in the art. Maybe it's because these books I'm picking for the spinner rack just keep getting better and better. Maybe I'm getting soft. My score was a solid 4.5 out of 5. Your score is something I'm still waiting to hear about, just like all these other books. Stay to the end to hear how we make that possible for you. And we're almost at the end because it's time for our fifth and final book of this week. And for that fifth and final book, we're going to move right on into Justice League number 27. Justice League has really been uh, a really enjoyable experience for me. When I picked this book up, I was really intrigued by this idea of this continued calamity, this universe-shaking, potentially ending challenge. And I feel it in so many previous examples that I've enjoyed with team books like the Justice League, these stories last for four to six issues at most and then conclude their arc. And that hasn't been the case with Justice League. Justice League, its story arc, because it's part of this larger concept of the source wall breaking and perpetual rising and the, the time of doom and the year of the villain and Leviathan, that there isn't actually any sort of rest. There's always this constant threat, this constant fight, this constant challenge to not only overcome the big problem, but also these other problems that arise in the process of taking on the big problem. In Justice League 27, we're now working through many of the complications that have become evident to the team ever since they returned from the Sixth Dimension. Even though they've got the World Forger on their side, there's an issue of trust and an issue of cohesiveness among the team. So many of the things that were seen in that far-flung future possible world have affected members of the team. For example, Martian Manhunter and Hawkgirl. The revelation that they have a child together in that future who has now come back with them is a really challenging idea for them, both as teammates and potentially as future partners. And it might have been why in last issue, John Johns, Martian Manhunter, was seen seeking out a mystery, one that he's discovered when he becomes a prisoner, as we see in this issue, uh, Professor Ivo, who dresses a machine to look, or designs and stylizes a machine to look just like Alexander Luther, Lex Luthor's father, who was the scientist in charge of experimenting on John Johns when he was first brought to Earth. And it's been a story thread that's been about this sort of discovery on both the part of 
Lex Luthor and John Johns and this relationship that they've had since Lex was a child and John was a first arrival to Earth. It looks like all hope is lost for John and that there's really no way he's going to get out of here until Hawkgirl comes to help him and in the process they're able to understand a little bit more about the struggles that they're facing and how Ivo is tied into Luther or if he really is. Another great part of this story is when the forger goes to find the monitor and the monitor is so challenged by the idea of even doing the next thing that must be done. The conflict that he's felt since the well, the ramifications of the crisis and the effects that it's brought to the multiverse. The monitor seems so weakened and broken and such a drastic difference from when he first appeared in Crisis on Infinite Earths as this massive, powerful figure. And I really like the idea of showing him in this way because I think in so many ways the people that we know in our lives or the characters that we know in comic books, we can get an impression of them initially and we always expect them to maintain that impression even if it's not humanly possible or just not possible humanly or otherwise whether for them or for us i think this is a great demonstration of just how far james tyne and the writer is trying to show that things have gone and also just how far away from achieving their goal the team the world the universe itself really is I love the development that in order to get to the next stage of what they need to do in order to accomplish their goals and stop Perpetua, the monitor says that they need to go find the anti-monitor on Quart. And Quart is something that's been referenced in many ways that I have a, a brief understanding of from its time uh, during the Crisis on Infinite Earth storylines, but in many ways, it's not something that's been addressed in some of the larger titles, and I'm curious to see how this is portrayed in the stories moving forward. The last thing I'm going to point out that falls into that positive storytelling side is when the offspring of John and Hawkgirl, this sweet young man, this lost figure, runs into Starman, and Starman just says, well, you can just call me Will. But he starts talking about, with Will, how he doesn't feel like he belongs or like he's maybe just some sort of abnormality. An abomination is something he calls himself. He doesn't even wonder, or he doesn't even know if he exists. And he wonders what that means. To which I really love the moment when Will reaches out, gives him a pinch, and says, hey, just checking to see if you exist. To which he then follows up that he's plugged into the energy of the universe, the energies of the multiverse. So he thinks he's pretty much an expert about people existing. And while, while it might not seem like it, the thing that this young boy needs to understand is that he's made out of possibility. Possibility exists because possibility matters. And then he says he could use some help and can this little boy help him out. It's a great touching moment. It shows that, that humanity, that, that core value that in so many ways the team is fighting for as they continue to find a way to fight back against Perpetua. It can be difficult to remember 
why and what it is we're fighting for. And in this moment, this idea of this small child from a possible future and his hopes and fears, they feel like the right things to be fighting for. I thought the art was gorgeous. And there's a great moment when we get to see John sort of lose his temper at Ivo. And the manifestation, this monstrous figure that comes out of it, is really sort of stunning and shocking. But overall, absolutely gorgeous. I've enjoyed every element of this story's art. I love the action. I love the beautiful, bright sort of splash pages or these panels in which there seems to be just so much power radiating. And there's an interesting little cliffhanger at the end of this one. A different cliffhanger. One that's presented to Hawkgirl and John after they help John escape from Ivo. And it's the kind of cliffhanger that could potentially change all the momentum that so far has been part of this Justice League storyline. I struggle to find any weaknesses in the story, although I do believe that It could be a challenge if you haven't been keeping up on this idea about Martian Manhunter and Lex Luthor having this previous history. I do feel, though, that the way that it's addressed in this story is enough to keep you informed and understand what's going on. And I also believe to entice you to pick up those earlier storylines to get a better grasp on just what it is was happening between Lex and Martian Manhunter, John Johns, And why it still continues to have such an effect on John, even if it's something that Lex doesn't appear to notice or be affected by, or if he does, is unwilling to admit to that. This was uh, a really great book for me. I really enjoyed, actually, all the books this week. And I feel like I'm just giving high praise upon high praise, but with a great book like uh, this Apex Predator Part 2, this idea of what it was that was trying to be done to John, and also what it is that may be uh, a pursuit of the uh, Legion of Doom, really sets up the next stage of development for this story. And I also feel that it raises the stakes without letting you know exactly yet just what those stakes are. Although up to this point, it seemed like it's been the fate of the universe and the multiverse. Perhaps there could be more involved. I'm looking forward to seeing the next issue to see where this goes. As far as a score for this one, I'm more than happy and proud to give this book a solid 4.5 out of 5. Because it's been so good, maybe I'm a little jaded, maybe I'm a little cautious about giving it a solid 5, because I think it's so easy for me to do that for a lot of the Justice League books that I've included on the Spinner Rack. So for this one, I'm keeping it at a humble 4.5. But if you think I could have gone for the full 5, well, I'd love for you to let me know. And now that we've finished up our fifth book, it's time for me to get to that important information. Now, when it comes to following DC Comics News Podcast, keep in mind that we're on all the major podcast platforms. So whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Play, you can find us. Search the name and then subscribe and rate and review because, well, we asked you to. And also because we want to know what you think. I think we're worth five stars. If you think any different or the same, please share that information with your rate and review and also reach out to us. You can find DC Comics News on so many social media channels, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, or YouTube. 
Just tag at DC Comics News. And when you do, let us know what you want to share with us. If it's something about the DC Comics News podcast or something about the spinner rack, about one of my books, one of my scores, or about one of the things I liked or didn't like. We love to hear from you. It's how we know we're part of this shared story. This has been another episode of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack, episode number 16 to be exact. I've been your host, Seth Singleton, and I'm going to invite you back to join me next week, just like each and every week, when I pick the top five from DC Comics. And as always, read more comics. Thanks for joining us, folks. See you next time.